The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. You'll find it near the end of your Old Testament. If you kind of split it open, your Bible, and and halfway, it'll probably be just a little bit right of center. It's a massive book, 66 chapters, and uh, go to 53. We'll actually back up and go a few verses into Isaiah 52, but that's where uh, we'll be. We're continuing to trace this theme of God's greatness. God's greatness through the pages of our Bible. And as we come here to this final chapter in this series from the Old Testament that we're going to take next week, will be in the New Testament. But as we come here to Isaiah 53, this chapter actually brings greater clarity to the hopes and promises of the previous chapters in uh, this series. You know, what's almost just been like this outlined picture, like a kid's uh, coloring book uh, of the Messiah now begins to add some color in our verses today to what that will look like. And you know, I really have uh, one singular aim this morning in this, and I think uh, the Lord brings us to this in Isaiah 53, is that our love for Christ will grow this morning. You know, if you're not a Christian uh, right now, uh, my prayer is that you'll be one by the time this service is over. That if, that if you're not, you can become one even right now. That you can stop and tune out all that is going on here. You can pray and repent of your sin and believe on Christ. And in the same way, if you're here this morning and your love for Christ has grown cold, I pray that uh, as we encounter fresh Jesus in Isaiah 53, that the dial of the heat of your faith will be turned up once again. You know, in some ways, I almost wish that we could just go uh, back in time to 600 B.C. and be some of the first readers of Isaiah. You know, what hopes, what anticipations, what conclusions would we draw from these words? What would we make of the peculiar victory of the suffering servant that he achieves in this passage? So hopefully you found Isaiah 53, and I want to read these verses uh, for us now. I want to read it with our hearts ready and our eyes eager to see the greatness of God's Son. And so look with me. We'll begin in 52 verse 13 and continue through the end of chapter 53. Follow along as I read it. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silence, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with uh, him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word for God's people. Pray with me another moment here. God in heaven, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, Minds that understand and see Christ in all his glory, even now. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, Isaiah here is a prophet uh, to the uh, nation of Judah in the time of the later kings. He uh, lived and ministered uh, approximately around 739 B.C. to 868 B.C. amongst the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, the entire book of Isaiah is long, 66 chapters, and it's poetic, a lot of uh, uh, flowery language. But in the poetry, it is also prophetic. And it's prophetic in pointing out events that would uh, take place in uh, the distant future. Some things from Isaiah have yet to come to pass. And I've heard it uh, in, in many different places, prophecy described like a mountain range. We who are believers, as we, uh, and, and as history is coming along, the prophets are, are describing things in the distance in the same way that as you were driving up towards, say, the Rocky Mountains, as they begin to come into view, uh, things uh, you can see, but uh, you can't make out distances and details. But the closer you get, the more clarity that becomes. And what once looked like two peaks that were very close together, the closer you get actually shows that they are far, far apart. And now Isaiah is speaking of a day, a day when who is known as the suffering servant, or we will know him as God's great son, comes into view. And so in these later chapters of Isaiah, uh, he writes about, like I just said, a suffering servant, first in chapter 42, then in 49 and 50, and it culminates now in the passage that I just read. And this servant, really, in the previous poems, in the previous descriptions, are very somber in tone. Until this one we come to, which begins in the opening verse and ends with uh, uh, strangely victorious. And all of Isaiah, 
but especially this portrait here, this, uh, this description of the suffering servant leads us then to this central conclusion that God's great son is the only one worthy of our worship. If we're to make anything of the verses that I just read, it is that God's great son is the only one worthy of our worship. And what becomes clear as we get closer to the mountain range is that the suffering servant is indeed God's great son. And one day God would send his great son to be the Messiah, to be the savior, our rescuer, the redeemer of humanity. And see, God's plan has always been this, to send the Son to suffer so that he would be glorified or exalted. And note, like I said, Isaiah writes this some 600 years before it happens. There's really no chapter in our Old Testament with so much detail that is precisely fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you have a study Bible in your hands, you likely have a whole page of of notes, a, a chart with New Testament references to the verses that we have just read. But this is all according to plan. And Peter, he emphasizes this even in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2 at the birth of the church when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. He preaches these words. Listen to it. They're on the screen here. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to, get this, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, it was not an accident or even a plan B that Christ came to live, to die, to rise again. And this is exactly where Isaiah brings us here. So you can see that Jesus is the only one of, uh, uh, worthy of our worship. Let us see here in these opening verses this truth that Jesus came purposefully. He came purposely. Look at verse 13 now and let's take a, a closer look at these verses. It begins with the word, Behold. Now, behold is one of those alert words in the Bible. As good Bible students, anytime you see the word behold, it should be like a stop sign. Stop. Take notice. This is important. Look at what is around this verse and what is immediately proceeding here. Behold, my servant, for God's great son shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And this is what we're after, right? We know that this is like this gets us excited here. And like I said here, uh, if we were to read the other accounts of the suffering servant here, this is a little bit out of place because it's been very somber leading up to it. And now this, uh, this, this declaration of victory, he will be high and lifted up and exalted. He will, in a word, be worshiped. But it is the pathway to his exaltation that is startling. Because we would maybe expect a pathway of dominion, a pathway of of great military victory. He he goes to point out it wasn't because of his good looks. No, they were astonished. Why? Because his appearance was so marred. He wasn't winning any beauty contests, that's for sure. But rather, he would be exalted through his bloody sacrifice. 
So much so that in verse 15, when it says he will sprinkle many nations, he is using Old Testament sacrificial language here that the sacrifice of this suffering servant who would come from Israel, the one to whom Isaiah is writing here, it would not just be for this nation, but to many nations. And at this great plan, at this pathway to this exaltation that would come through suffering, that would come through sacrifice, at this, the rulers of the world, the kings, their mouths are silenced. They are astonished. Why? Because this plan for victory, plan for glory, goes against all convention. Makes no sense. Goes against all political, military, and economic sense. Maybe even to some common sense. For how does death lead to life. And yet it was no accident. It was the purposeful plan and pathway of God for the exaltation of his great son. Jesus himself knew that this was the way to his exaltation. He knew and he came willfully. See, note this, that God, uh, God's great son did not come reluctantly. It was not like the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were sitting up there and they were drawing straws about who would come and lay down their life. And the second person in the Trinity drew the short straw and he's like, well, I guess this is my lot in life. Nobody knew why he came. And the Apostle John in uh, his uh, Gospel of John brings this out repeatedly in his Gospel. All throughout the, the book of John, as you read it, he'll, uh, you'll see words like John or Jesus knowing all that was about to happen. Jesus knew, Jesus knew. And uh, in, in both is Jesus knowing his death and his resurrection comes out in the opening verses of John 13. Just listen to this here. This is before Jesus washes his disciples' feet, before those fateful events of Calvary come to pass, Listen to these words from John 13, 1 to 3. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, look at this, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. There in the span of a few verses, Jesus knows that he would suffer, but he also knew that he would be exalted. See, Christ's death on the cross, his rising again, this was all a part of the purposeful plan of God. He knew and it was for the joy that was set before him. And see, here's the thing, redemption. If God was working all of this out purposefully, if he arranged all things for Christ's coming and life and death and resurrection, we can rest assured then that he is in control of all the things and details in our life as well. Things may seem out of control, even headed towards death or destruction. Things may not make sense. But who is in control? It is the Lord. Before our eyes, we can see and understand with a spiritual wisdom sometimes that can just make us be silent before the Lord. For this is his way. He comes purposefully, but he not only came purposefully, he lived humbly. See, Jesus lived humbly. Look at the first three verses here as it moves from why he came, the purpose for whence he came, and now how he lives his life. And it's almost like here, as Isaiah begins, he says, who's believed and who has, who's the plan been, uh, or who has seen the plan carried out? 
The answer is really Israel. They would believe this. They would see this and many would reject it here. This reference to the arm of the Lord being revealed, that's a, a phrase that Isaiah used about God's activity, his work. It's not like, you know, God's like flexing up there and like, you know, showing his muscles off. It's just an expression of his work and activity. And he's elaborating here on how unusual and how unspectacular was Jesus' entrance into the world. There was no fanfare. There was no like royal birth announcement that God had come. Just came like a small root, verse 2 says, that we overlook or maybe even trample upon. He was not tall and rugged and handsome. He did not stand out amongst the crowds. He's actually someone that was, look at the words in verse 3, he was despised, rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Not only did he not stand out in a crowd for his good looks, he was one whom people hid their face from. Despised, not esteemed. Redemption, does this describe the stereotypical leader or victor? No, it often describes the loser, the one who has lost. And yet in all of this, our great king came humbly. He came in humility. Humility, as we've said many times, is the answer for humanity's affliction. It was the humility, uh, humility of Christ that won our salvation, that is, uh, won our sanctification, that is, won our glorification. It is what unites us to God, and it is the way of humility that unites us with one another. It is po- impossible without it. And so Jesus took the low road. He left heaven's throne. He came to live on this earth. He emptied himself, as Philippians 2 says. So don't miss this. Jesus emptied himself. No one forced him, as has been said. He came willingly. He came joyfully. He came purposely. Why? Because humility, the lowering of himself, this humble uh, beginnings in this humble life isn't a negative attribute to define the weak and the wimpy. Someone who doesn't have any self-respect or dignity or purpose or plan in his life, but rather humility is a crowning characteristic of God's great son. It is actually the pathway to his exaltation, and it is in that pathway our problem, our sin was taken care of. We were hopeless and helpless without it. It is humility that led Christ straight to the cross. The lowest point of his humiliation, from heaven to the grave, then was his condescension. Nothing greater has ever happened. And as Christ's followers, even in our day today, it is the humble road of Christ that is the same direction of travel for us. Christ is the only one worthy of our worship. He came purposefully. He lived humbly And he died as a substitute. He died as a substitute. Grasp the weight of verses 4 through 6 here for a moment. Grasp the weight of what Christ carried as our substitute. And not just yours, but for all of God's people. He has borne our griefs. Have you felt the weight of loss and grief before? Now multiply that out by all of his people. He's carried our sorrows. He was esteemed as as, as stricken, like with a sickness. He was smitten by God as if he was cut off. He was afflicted. 
purposefully hurt. This is severe. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed, crushed for our iniquities. Chastise, not a word we use often, beaten, beaten, and wounded. Result of all this, our salvation, our spiritual healing. Why was this necessary? Because verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Sheep doing our own thing. Our bent towards independence is a human epidemic. We think we, uh, we can survive on our own. Live life according to our own terms. See, do you understand what we've just described that Christ bore? We deserved all of that. I did, you did, we all did. Every single one of us. And yet Christ bore it all. Stood in our place. Died as our substitute. And this is all according to the great plan of God because only God's great son could bear this great amount of guilt. Only he could. He suffered for us. He died for us and left us an example. He left us an example so much so that First Peter, uh, he, he tells us then as a result of these things, first, in First Peter 2, he's quoting these verses and he says, now because of this, we should die to sin and live to righteousness. See, Christ died for sin that we might die to sin. Have you trusted Christ, church? Then you are dead to sin. It is no longer your master. You are now alive to righteousness, to doing what pleases God. You can uh, very simply say no and yes, no to sin, and now yes to the things of God. And this not because you or I did anything, was it? But it is because Christ was our substitute. He is the one who lived the perfect life. He achieved perfection. And he did it all. And he died blamelessly. He died blamelessly. Not only did Jesus die as a substitute, but he died blamelessly. This is what verses 7 to 9 bring out here. Not just anybody could be the substitute. It had to be the perfect, uh, blameless one. Fully God to carry an infinite amount of sin and fully human to legitimately live out God's law perfectly. And the picture that we get in these verses in 7, 8, and 9 is the wrongness of what is happening. It's so wrong. It is so unjust. The innocent one is being punished. And yet he says nothing. Not even like a little bleat of a sheep. He seems to be losing everything. That's what the generation's considering. He's like, he's lost everything. He has no inheritance. He has been totally cut off from all worldly possessions. He's been killed with robbers and placed in a grave. He's been buried in a rich man's tomb that he didn't deserve to be in because he was so poor, he lost everything and someone had to take him in. Yet he was totally innocent. 
He'd done no violence. He had, he had no deceit. He was totally blameless and led to the slaughterhouse. And it was through these verses here and understanding who Christ is that many have been counted righteous. Many have found salvation. For there is no other name under uh, heaven by which men can be saved. It was through these verses that the man in Acts 8 was led to the Christ. You know the story? Turn over there with me just for a second here. Acts chapter 8. It's in your New Testament. Over a few hundred pages likely. Acts chapter 8. The story of Philip and the Ethiopian here. And I want us to just read it for a second. I'll read it and then make some comments on it. Because it is to these verses that this man is led to Christ. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Just listen to this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip. Philip was one of the seven set apart in Acts chapter 6, a few verses before. He says, rise and go toward the south of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of all the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now that's some light reading, mind you. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. It's, uh, this is Isaiah 53. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Say this about himself or about someone else. You know the answer, don't you? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down under the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus and he passed through. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. It is the very passage that we find ourselves in today that this man was led to Christ and his subsequent then baptism. He's gone to worship. He's coming back. He's intrigued. He's reading uh, this book in Isaiah. And guess what? God gives him eyes to see. Gives him a heart to believe. He identifies then with Christ in baptism. And how cool is it that in God's providence, we would be in this passage in Isaiah 53 and get to witness the baptism of our sister Hannah. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. And maybe this is you this morning. Maybe you came in at enmity with God and you have seen what Christ has done, how he came purposely to save, that he would be high and exalted and lifted up in your life. 
and you've recognized the weight of your sin and that Christ died as a substitute to pay for your sin. He was the blameless one. You were the guilty one and he took it. He took it. And you're realizing that today. You could be identified with Christ. What would prevent you from being baptized today? If that is you, we have the water right here. We'll close this. There's our elders, Michael, Ben. They'll be in the back. Talk to them, and let's hear your testimony. Let's see what God is doing in your life, and let's make a public profession of faith today. See, God's great son died blamelessly, but as we sang about, he did not stay dead, did he? For Jesus rose victoriously as, it was, uh, as we get a glimpse of in these verses. You know, here's the thing. In case you have any lingering thoughts about some aspect of this not being part of the plan, verse 10 squashes all of those doubts. For it was the will of the Lord that all this would happen. The only way to rescue humanity, the only way to glory was through the crushing grief of Christ. And yet the darkness of death suddenly sounds hopeful in verse 10. Do you see it here? See, when the offering is made here, look at it. When his soul makes an offering for the Lord, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And now all of a sudden we start to get this victory language. Like how could this happen? How, how would he see? How would his days be long? How would he prosper? What? We thought he died. Yes, he was dead, but he does not stay dead. Through his anguish comes this satisfaction. Through the knowledge of what he was doing, that many will be declared righteous. Why? Because he would take on their sin for himself. And then church, we the redeemed, we are the spoils. We are the victory. Uh, we are the prize that he wins in his victory. Though God's great son was treated like a criminal, Though just this repetition here, though he was punished unjustly, he was victorious. And not only is he just alive now to, you know, to live in heavenly glory. As it ends, he makes intercession for us. He prays, he advocates for us before the follower saying, she's with me. Church, this is why we have hope. He won. This is why we have confidence. Why? Because he prays for us. This is why we worship, because he is God's great son, the suffering servant and great king. This is Jesus. The one who alone is worthy of our worship. The one who deserves our praise. No one is greater. No one is better. No life more perfect. No death has accomplished more and no one whose resurrection deserves more glory and honor than Christ, God's great son. Do you love him this morning, church? And let's pray and sing to him a song of worship even now. Join me as we pray. God in heaven, here we are. Uh, your children, uh, your, uh, uh, your rescued ones, this morning, we, God, we've seen Christ. We've recognized we are not the Christ. We are not perfect. This chapter does not describe us. We've gone astray. We're the ones lost and confused. 
And so would you right now, God, would you uh, cause our hearts to swell with love for Jesus? Help us to, uh, God, even though we can't always understand the whys and the hows of your great plan and all of this, would we just be silent before you in worshipful awe and wonder? you continue this saving work in and through us through those who are gathered and uh, and through the continued ministry of this church would it be about making christ known and so christ we do want to lift you high we want to exalt you even now as we sing to you be lifted higher now be lifted higher in Christ's name we pray. Amen.